Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. And we're in a series called Wonder. And today's message is God moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that cool? He who is the bread of life began his ministry hungering. He fasted for 40 days right at the beginning of his ministry. He who is the water of life ended his ministry thirsty. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, I thirst. Christ hungered as a man, yet fed the multitudes as God. He was weary, yet He is our rest. He prayed, yet He hears our prayers. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, as a slave would be, yet He redeems sinners and buys them back from their slavery. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. He died, and by dying, destroyed death. Let us wonder. The wonder of God becoming human is almost beyond comprehension. How does creator become creature? How does maker become made? How does word become flesh? Today we're going to see that Jesus was the pre-existent Son of God who became human and moved into our neighborhood. I'm hoping that you'll catch the wonder with me of that event. Now I've already shared this a couple of weeks before, but... This is a really hard time of the year to preach. If you're a pastor right now in this community or somebody that is speaking and teaching the Word, you realize that during this time of the year, during Christmas, and during the the month before Easter, leading up to Easter, you have one of the greatest challenges at hand in your preaching schedule. And here's why. Because familiarity often breeds contempt. Those things that we are so familiar with often cause us to lose the sense of wonder or value of them. When we hear a message year after year after year, oh yeah, Jesus, baby, manger, shepherds, sheep, right, wise men, all of that, we we start to lose the wonder of it. And so I'm praying today, and my hope is that today as we look at who Jesus really is, that you in a fresh way will see him. And be captivated by him. That he'll become wonderful, beautiful, glorious, and majestic to you. Amen? My key scripture is this one that's up here on the screen. Look at it with me. It says, the word, this is from the message paraphrase, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And the first point I want to look at today, if you're taking notes, is wonder. God the Creator became human in Jesus. 
I'm going to start with John chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, verse 10, and verse 14. And as you look at the screen up here and you, you take note of the text, let it captivate you. So let's start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if we take this section of Scripture and we break it down, there are several sub-points that we'll notice. And here's the first one, again, if you're taking notes, and that is that the Word was already present in the beginning. Look at these two texts of Scripture side by side. I think it's pretty powerful and it's by intention. But notice this. Verse 1 there says, In the beginning was the Word. But then Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John, the writer of this gospel, is connecting these opening verses of chapter 1 in John to the opening verses of chapter 1 in Genesis. He's taking this New Testament book that starts out talking about who Jesus is, and he's taking the very first verse of the, New, of the Old Testament, he's putting them together, and he's correlating them, and he's wanting us to see that both Genesis 1 and John 1 go together, and that they are forms of poetry and or songs that weave a beautiful story of the creation of all things. And then he shows us this, the same God who is called and God, in the beginning God, is the same one who is the Word. In the beginning God is now echoed by, in the beginning was the Word. And this is really important for Christians. We, we may not realize it because here we are 2,000 years after the events of Jesus coming to earth physically, but we don't realize that this very verse, John 1.1, 1, 1, has been debated about and fought over for centuries and centuries. You see, in early Christianity, there were debates about who Jesus is. There were debates about whether or not He was truly God. There were debates about the nature and the idea of the Godhead being Trinity. And, and theologians went back and forth and they argued and they debated actually for three centuries over these issues. And we find even today in the time that we live, there are different religious groups that deny the deity of Jesus, that is that Jesus is God. They deny that and they believe that he's just a God or um, an energy or kind of an outshining of God, but they refuse to acknowledge that he is God himself. And so when we say here that Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God and then John 1 says, in the beginning, the Word. We see that God and the Word are one and the same. Which takes me to my second point, and that was that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what the second part of chapter 1 says. The Word was, isn't this weird? Think about it. It almost sounds like a contradiction. The Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. 
What does that mean? The word was both with God and yet God. The only possible explanation for this is the Trinity. The word is the second person of the Trinity. The pre-existent Son of God. God the Son. You see, here's what we have to see. When Jesus showed up on earth 2,000 years ago as a baby, that wasn't his beginning. That wasn't, you know, God suddenly saying, I'm going to have my son be born into the world and begin. But what we see actually throughout the scripture is that Jesus pre-existed his earthly birth and was eternal and one with the Father. What's powerful about this is there's a little Greek word here, the word with. The word was with God, that little Greek word is a word called pros. And pros, this is interesting, simply means face to face. And then later in that same chapter 1, John goes on to write, and, and the word was in the only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father. He has shown us what the father is like. So what does that mean? Jesus was eternally with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the bosom of the Father, meaning right there, face to face, chest to chest, and forever and ever in an eternal community, in an eternal family, in an eternal union and unity, in a beautiful picture of what human beings were supposed to be in marriage and family, we see as a reflection of, we see God's nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, face to face in the bosom, Staring, speaking, in communion, in unity, ever communicating the heart and the will and the mind of one God, yet three persons in one essence, Trinity, eternal community, the pattern for all relationship. And that's what we see right here in the very beginning, that he pre-existed. He was both with God and he is God because God is Father Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one essence, indivisible, co-powerful, right, forever and ever reigning and ruling. That's really important. And that takes us to the third point. This word created everything, everything, excuse me. It says, all things were made through him. Can we get that text up there? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So wait a minute, Jesus made everything? The ESV study Bible says this, made through him follows the consistent pattern of scripture in saying that God the Father carried out his creative works through the activity of the Son. Why is this important? Because I have people come to me regularly, and some of you probably experience this, and, and they say, I don't really understand the Trinity, right? I mean, I get Jesus, like they'll say, I'm reading the Bible and I relate to Jesus, but God the Father's kind of, whoa, and the Holy Spirit's kind of, wow, right? This, the God the Father's like, wow, scary, big, mean guy with a long flowing beard and the wind's blowing. He's got his finger pointed at you, and he's just waiting to make an ink spot of you, right? An oil spot on the earth because of your sin. And, you know, there's this picture almost like God is really angry. And then Jesus is the Savior. And Jesus is over here. He's going to take the fall for you. And he's like, you know, pleading your case with the Father. Like, Father, don't be too hard on him, Lord. I, I know you're really angry and wrathful about their sin, but please be, be nice to him, Father. We get this picture. And what we do in that is we distort the image of God. Because Jesus said something profound. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
So if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus as he manifests himself in the new covenant. Look at what Jesus is like, and you see the perfect picture of the Father. I I have people sometimes like, let me see, was was that God the Father doing that, or was that Jesus doing that, or was that the Holy Spirit? And I say, yes. They go, what? Yes, because the Father is never active doing anything that the Son is not also active doing and the Holy Spirit is not active doing. There isn't this division within the Godhead as though each member of the Godhead kind of has their job to do and the others aren't actively a part of that. So when we say, I've heard people say, man, you can really sense the Father in the house today. You ever heard that? And there is a truth to it. The father heart of God is being manifested and we're feeling the presence of a father loving his sons and daughters. But here's the reality. At that moment that father is present, healing broken hearts and restoring people, Jesus is present. The Holy Spirit is present. And God is delighting each member of the Trinity, delighting in the work that he does inside of us. Does that make sense? God doesn't divide He's not like, you know, hey, son, I see you got back from that mission in Drew's life. How did it go? Yeah, that would be, yeah, you hear what he said? Not good, man. You know, we get that picture sometimes, like the Trinity means that, you know, three members of the Godhead and they're kind because we relate in human terms. We think of personages being separate because that's the way we are. We each have our own mind, our own will, but in the Trinity, within the nature and the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always move and act in unity. That's pretty cool. And so when I look at Jesus in the New Testament and I'm like, man, I can really relate. Look at his compassion. Look at his fire. Look at the way he deals with evil. Look at the beauty of the way he healed that person. I, I, can, I can go, oh, wow. Father is just like that. And he loves me. For God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave the Son. Right? Is anybody alive out there? Are you relating? Which takes me to the next point, and that is that the Word became a human being. This is profound. And the Word became flesh. The New Living Translation says, the Word became human. Again, the ESV Study Bible says, this is the most amazing event in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent. So omnipotent means all-powerful. Omnipresent means everywhere present. Omniscient means all-knowing. This God, the infinitely holy Son of God, took on a human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time in one person. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. It's not about the sentimental picture of a mama and a baby, though that's beautiful and there's something profound about that that we need to know, but this is the picture of God wanting so badly to get down here and fix the brokenness of his world and the sin of humanity and to deal with the evil of the devil and the evil of the human heart. And he said, the only way we can do this is I have to go down and become one of them. Wow. That's profound. So when you're walking through the store and they're playing these, you know, Christmas carols that just sound so nice, stop and think about what is being said, what is being sung, and let it captivate you with wonder again. And then it says the word moved into the neighborhood. I love that. 
Verse 14 says in the ESV, and dwelt among us, the MSG, and moved into the neighborhood, the NLT, and made his house among us. This Greek word literally means lived in a tent among us. The word is tabernacled among us, tented among us. So you could read this and instead of dwelt among us and tented among us. Jesus came down and said, I'm going to pitch my tent in human territory and I'm going to be with you and love you. And he came right down here and became a resident of a sinful, fallen planet Earth. He moved into a rough area and resided in a violent world, the violent world of the Roman Empire. You know, sometimes people will say, man, it's bad today. We live in a bad time. It's so dark. It's so evil. I'll hear people, you know, they'll look at the news and say, it must mean Jesus is coming soon. And I'm not going to get into that right now. But let me just say, if you think right now is dark, there have been many times in history that are much darker than right now, where the general state of humanity was much, much darker. Now, I admit there's something unique about living in a time when we can single-handedly, a nation like us can destroy the entire planet by pushing some buttons. That's unique. That's never been but if you look at history, if you look at when Jesus came to the earth, if you had you know, been translated, if you could jump in a time machine and travel back to the Roman Empire, you'd be shocked at how violent, how sexually deviant, how dark and evil the Roman Empire was. You'd be blown away by it. And then you'd see your brothers and sisters try to have gatherings like this, be yanked and pulled out of those gatherings and taken and either crucified or burned at the stake or taken into a, a huge coliseum and, and they'd turn loose lions and tigers and bears, oh my, to eat the Christians up. That's a little bit different world. We actually see it happening on our planet right now in places like China where the government has suddenly cracked down on the underground church and on Christians and Christians are being imprisoned and tortured and, and they're, they're taking strong, bold stands. We see it in Iran and Iraq and different parts of the Middle East where it's illegal to be a Christian. We see our brothers and sisters suffering much. But if you were transported in time back to the Roman Empire, you'd be like, wow, that was dark. And that's the neighborhood that Jesus moved into. Wow. Which takes me to my second main point, and that is wonder. God moved in. What does it look like? What does it look like when God moves into our neighborhood? Well, first of all, you ever think about this? Jesus experienced the limitations of a body. It says the Word became human. God the Son experienced going from limitless, unbounded life and power to being contained within a weak flesh and blood human body like ours. He had to learn how to manage his body and care for it like all of us do. Now now again, think about this. 
Let's say you're a person that believes in the quantum sciences and you think there's a multiverse out there and that there are dimensions that we can't even see and experience. I probably believe that too. There are things that we can't see or we don't even know about that science is just beginning to discover and, and, and the multiverse is so huge and so wide and so expansive and we look at that and we think, it seems like it has no boundaries. Could you call it infinite? Well, no. But I guess if there's anything close to infinite, it is. And yet, the Scripture teaches that the God that we worship not only doesn't dwell in that, He does, His presence is there, but it's not His container. The multiverse, the universe, doesn't contain Him because it has boundary. God spills outside of the boundary of anything within our imagination, and actually, the multiverse is contained within God. Now think about that. And that being the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, self-limited himself to a human body. And we have some couples in our church, it's pretty cool, who have had new babies. One of them standing in the back right there. Marissa's back there with Luca. And uh, we're so glad you guys are here and so good to see you. Corey, Marissa, so good to see you guys. We love you. So she's standing back there holding her little baby. And let me tell you something, if she, does, if she doesn't hold that, that little guy's head, that head kind of flops here and there, right? And that baby eats, poops, and sleeps. That's the life of a baby. Smiles every once in a while and has gas and all the, you know, isn't it funny the things babies can get away with? The rest of us can never do that, right? And, and we look at the limitation of a newborn baby and we think the Son of God self-limited himself to the body of a newborn baby and had to rely upon human parents that he created to care for him. Say, what? You think science fiction's amazing? I mean, that's just like, wow. And the second point, Jesus experienced weakness and weariness. You ever think about this? While he was a man, it says in John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Have you ever been weary from the journey? I remember, I was telling the first service, I remember when our kids were young and we would take trips to California together. Four kids in the minivan two-day drive. Somebody say, help him, Lord. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That was a tough time. They were adventurous. They were fun. Those were fun trips. But sometimes by the end of the second day, I was ready to commit murder. (laughs) He touched me. She looked at me. (laughs) Right? Weary from the journey. Sometimes life in general, it's a journey, you know, this thing we're on called life. Sometimes it gets tiring. Sometimes I wish there was an escape clause, right? Sometimes I wish there was a way to get out. Isn't there an off-ramp somewhere on this highway? Right? You feel that way. And sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's mental. You have mental, emotional weariness, physical weariness, and you, you just, you got to rest, Jesus, our Lord, experienced that. Think about that. He experienced that. 
I mean, Luke chapter 8, verses 20 through to 20, 22 through 24, um, let me just remind you of the story. I'm not going to go over there, but um, there's a windstorm, and the disciples are in the boat, and Jesus has been doing uh, you know, days of ministry nonstop, and he's very tired, and they get in a boat to go over to the other side of the lake, and Jesus gets in this boat, and the storm comes up, and it's a really bad storm, and these fishermen who have spent their life on the lake fishing it and know it are terrified at how bad the storm is. Water is washing into the boat, and it's affecting them while they're in the boat, and they look for Jesus, and where's Jesus? He's in the boat asleep in the middle of a violent storm. Now, that tells me something. The dude was tired. Really, really tired. So tired he could sleep through a violent storm. You see, Jesus knows what it is to be weak and weary. He gets it when you're like that. Have you ever thought about inviting him into your weariness? You're going along in life and you're just like, I'm tired. I'm emotionally tired. I can't do it anymore. You feel like if I receive one more phone call or one more person talks to me or I deal with any more family drama or you name it, if that guy on that job even looks at me again, I'm going to punch him in the nose. And you just get weary and wore out and tired with life and you feel like you're on the edge. You ever been on the edge of a breakdown? You ever been in a place where you feel like, I'm going to snap. I can't keep doing this. Have you ever thought about saying, because the, the way a lot of us are, we think Jesus is the suck it up God. We think when we're feeling like that, the Lord is disappointed in us. Where's your faith? You should be stronger. What's wrong with you? That's what we think about the Lord. But actually, he's saying, hey, why don't you invite me to come alongside your weariness and uphold you? Why don't you invite me to sit with you in your tiredness? Maybe what you need to do is sleep. I remember years ago, I was really tired. Ministry was wearing me down. Stuff was going on in the church, and I was disappointed, and I was angry, and I was tired, and I was on the edge, and I really did feel like I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to do anything, and I was at a point in my life where I was before the Lord, and I just felt like, you need to pray more. You need to fast more. You need to read the Bible more. I was going through all of that, and none of it was giving me life, and I fell asleep, and I woke up. And the Lord sustained me. David actually says that in the psalm. I fell asleep and I woke up and the Lord sustained me. And I got up and I realized, wow, the prescription for my weariness was rest. And it's okay. Don't do more. Rest. Let Jesus come alongside you in his own humanity and uphold you. Is this making sense? He experienced, this is the big one that most people have a hard time with, Jesus experienced temptation to sin. You ever thought about that? Look at Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Read that verse, right? Get that verse branded in your mind. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Think about that. That's so profound. He gets it. Sometimes we, we condemn ourselves. Listen, I, I know some people who don't even know the difference between temptation and sin. 
We feel like if we're really tempted, strongly tempted, and we're like, oh, we're being pulled on, and we want to do that thing we shouldn't do, or we want to not do that thing we should, and there's the battle and the struggle, and it's in front of our minds, and it's captivating us, and we resist, and we resist, and we resist, and we overcome. Oftentimes, we beat ourselves up, and we think, I sinned in that, but you didn't sin in it. You overcame in it. And Jesus experienced what you just walked through, and he gets it, and he doesn't condemn you. In fact, he comes along and says, yes, good, you let me bear you up, you let me carry you. There's something to me that's so comforting about the idea that the Lord has been tempted like I have, because I've been tempted. I've been tempted in life, and I've failed a lot, too. I've sinned a lot. All of us have, right? But... But there have been times I've been in battles where I knew the enemy wants to take me down. And in the midst of that battle, being drawn and being pulled, coming through the other side of it, and being able to land in the refuge that he gets me. Wow. How about he experienced rejection and suffering? Isaiah 53, 3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Have you been rejected? Anybody in this room ever been rejected? Those of you not raising your hands are also liars. Let me pray with you. Have you been rejected? So has he. Have you experienced suffering? So has he. Have those you've loved not received you? He's experienced the same. You can tell him. He'll console you. You can tell him, Lord, it really hurts that my family is doing this to me. It really hurts that that friend was talking trash about me. This really bothers me, Lord. I want to take my own vengeance. I want to take matters into my own hands, but I'm not going to. I'm going to be like you were, Jesus. I'm going to close my mouth. Some of us need to practice that, don't we? Close your mouth, put your phone down. Listen, at that moment when you know that you could just text them, you could shred them. It's probably time to put your phone down, face down, and walk away and go, have a little talk with Jesus. Tell them all about your troubles. Right? what you need to do at that moment. Go have a little talk with Jesus, man, because he gets it. He knows about your rejection. He knows about your suffering. He knows about what people are saying. He knows people are talking trash. And he had a lot of people talk trash about him and lie about him. He had false witnesses come and make up stories about him to get him crucified. He's been through what you've been through and more. And he wants you to come and sit with him, talk to him about it, tell him about it. Amen? He experienced, here's a good one, we're not going to end there. He experienced joy, and he shares it with us. Luke 10, 21 says, at that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, Father, 
Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. We see Jesus happy. And then John 15, 11, he says this, these things I have spoken to you that my, my joy, listen to this, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And that word full means overflowing, spilling out. Now I'm looking at some of you and you're looking like you're sucking on a lemon. We need some joy in our lives, don't we? And I'm not talking about the joy or the happiness that comes from circumstances. I'm not talking about everything's going my way. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about all your circumstances are lining up, the planets are lining up, everything about where you live and what you're doing and how you're working looks good, and because of that, you're happy. I'm talking about an abiding joy because the joy giver is living inside of you, and he's giving you the perspective to see the world the way he does, and there's beauty for ashes, and right in the midst of your suffering, there is one who suffered and came through it because of the joy that was set before him. There's joy. He's not the always sad, always sorrowful Jesus of middle age paintings. I, I sometimes, don't you, is anybody else like me? You look at these paintings of Jesus, and he's just always like this, you know? He's like, <laughs> right? And you're like, dude, get a life. I remember years ago, this one painter painted a picture of Jesus laughing. I was like, finally. One dude out of thousands painted a laughing Jesus. Jesus has joy and he wants to share it with you. And you know, many times what happens to us is we look to the wrong places for our joy. That's why people, why, why do we get into addictions? Why do we get into substances? We're looking for joy, we're looking to be happy, and we think that pill, that pipe, that drink, we think that porn, whatever, we think that's going to fill something, scratch something, give us a joy, but it doesn't. It leaves us empty. It leaves us condemned. And at the end of the day, we're hooked and we can't get out. But Jesus comes along and he imparts real joy to us. And that takes me to my last point. Jesus bore our sin and experienced death for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you, Paul writing, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Can somebody say, yeah. yeah. Woo! Come on. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, now, now think about this. Jesus went all the way through what it means to be human, even to the point of death. I mean, I know some of us in this room don't want to face it, but we're going to die. I remember that scene in What About Bob? If you've never seen that movie, you need to. It's absolutely classic. But Bob's laying in his room one night with this other little boy. They're laying there, and the little boy says, we're all going to die. He's laying on the bed. And Bob's over there going. And he starts to, you know, get 
all existential and philosophical about life. And, but we're going to die. And a lot of times what happens is we believe Jesus is with us and all the other stuff. But when it comes to face and death, we feel like we're going to come up to death's door and we're going to be abandoned. And what we don't know is he already went there. He already died. He's tasted the full experience of what it means to be human. And I've had to remind myself of that many times in my own prayer life because sometimes I, I really face the reality of dying. I mean, let me tell you something. The older you get, the more you think about it. You really think about death because most of our life we live in denial of it. When you're young, you think you're never going to die. Nothing can kill you. The older you get and the more people you watch die and the more people you watch go through disease or die suddenly and tragically, you, you realize, man, this, this baby could come knocking at my door any day. But I'm not going to go there alone. He's going to walk with me through it. He's going to take my hand and we're going to face death together. But even beyond that, he took your sin and he took your eternal death. He took the spiritual death that you and I had coming and he bore it on the cross. And when his blood was poured from his body, it became the cleansing agent for our sin. And then he was laid in a tomb and then he was raised from the dead. And here's the beauty of that. That resurrection was our pattern for you and I are going to be raised too. So he's been the whole journey. He's done it all. He's been a baby. He's lived a life. He's experienced our rejection and sorrow. He's been crucified in our place. He died our spiritual death. He's been raised from the dead, and he's gone before us. And we are the recipients of calling him Savior and Lord. Wonder. Isn't that beautiful? He went all the way through what it means to be human, even to the point of death. He experienced our death. The wonder of Christmas is that God moved into our neighborhood as a human being. He gets us. He lived our life. He's experienced our suffering, rejection, sorrow, and joy. He knows what it is to be weak and tempted, yet he remains sinless and died for us on the cross. He's alive forever as the God-man, and you can come to him today and be reconciled and your life can be restored. You know, I remember years ago, I was thinking about this event, the incarnation. And it, it struck me that the wonder of the incarnation is not just that God became a man, but that Jesus, think about this, Jesus took up into deity, into God, a body. If you've ever wondered if God really loved human beings, if he really loves you, I want you to realize that someday when you stand before him, he's still going to have a human body. He's still going to have scars. And those scars are going to speak love. That's what they speak. It's amazing to think that God, who is spirit, took a glorified human body up into heaven with himself. Right? 
Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's sitting in a body. Wow. That should forever cause us to to know that the God who wanted to get so close to us that he became a man, not only came down here and temporarily kind of lived our experience, but he took that humanity up into divinity. So he could say forever, I want to lift you. I want to lift you out of your ashes, out of your sorrow, out of your death, out of your sin, into my life. I want to forgive you, cleanse you, give you a new beginning. And it's time for a new beginning for many of you. Today is a day of new beginning for many of you.